You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So we have a special guest today, and she is an HR extraordinaire, coach, mentor, executive, as well as author of 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR, Patricia Garland. And Patricia is a returning guest. Welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. Thanks, Peter. Nice to be here. So this episode is really for HR folks and maybe small business owners who have a hand in compensation. And I was sharing a story with you over the weekend that I'll share for the listeners. Um, And I'm going to make this very generic, but this kind of leads to our discussion today on merit pay plans. So over the weekend, I was having coffee with a friend and he was sharing a story with me about a friend of his who works for a company that is very public-facing, so they, they have a lot of customer service folks who interact with the public, from adults to children, et cetera. And this friend of his, who I'll call Barbara, is a woman in her early 70s, not wealthy but financially well-off in that she does not have to work. So she's a part-time worker dealing with the public, and she is very good at it. She, who she has not worked most of her life because she, again, she's well off. She has been at this company for about a year or so and got an increase of 75 cents an hour. And she was thrilled. Now, again, I say this because she does not need the money, but she was thrilled with this increase. And she went about talking to her coworkers about how excited she was, elated that she got this increase because the company loves her. She's really good at the job. And her coworkers informed her that they got a dollar more per hour. So that elation turned to anger and resentment. And although she's not the type of person who would go out and start a union, and I think we're going to call this episode How Your Merit Pay Plan Can cause unionization. I was talking with my friend as we were having coffee about this. I was like, wow, that is a merit pay plan that is totally screwed up. In that, she had no idea that she was going to get less than her coworkers. She thought she was doing a great job. And I should add, as a part-time worker, she also calls out occasionally because she has health issues. So... I kind of lay that out there because I saw several things wrong with that and I wanted to get your take on it and what companies who have merit pay plans should be doing. And I, I'm saying all this because I have my own personal biases against merit pay, probably because of my union background, but I also see a lot of companies that screw their merit pay plans up. So I just dumped all that on you and the listeners all at once What do you think? Is that not one of the 33 ways, if not several of the 33 ways to screw up HR? 
Absolutely. This is something I hit on in several chapters in my book. Right. But uh, <clears throat> the thing that HR people need to understand, or business owners, if they're getting good HR coaching, is that the people who are their leaders do not understand merit pay, even if they themselves understand it. The people who are responsible for making these decisions and communicating these decisions don't understand it. And HR professionals need to spend a lot of time with their leaders, making sure they understand how to divide up a merit budget and then how to communicate the increases. When I look at Barbara's situation, um, something that happens frequently is they'll take that 25 cents away from someone like Barbara because they know Barbara will be content with 75 cents, even though it's not the right amount. And they'll give that 25 cents to somebody else who is going to be ticked off if he gets 75 cents. So it goes to the person who is going to make the biggest stink about the increase, not the person who deserves it. I see that all the time. And that goes back to making sure that your managers are confident in how they make the decision and how they communicate the decision. Because otherwise, what they'll do is match everybody in the middle. If you've got a 3.5% budget, everybody will get 3.5%. And they will miss out on this opportunity to communicate something that is of tremendous importance. Well, there's a couple of other things that I saw wrong with this is that she was blindsided. She did not know that she was going to get dinged for, and I don't know this to be the case. It may have been attendance. So she was shot, you know, she was basically shot down on what could have been a higher increase without having been communicated with. We always tell managers that um, a performance review should never be a surprise. Well, the same goes for merit increases. Right. If there is some aspect of Barbara's performance that was heading her toward a lower merit increase than she might have otherwise expected, that should have been discussed with her in enough time that she could fix it before she got the disappointing increase. Right. Well, and the other component to this, which is kind of goes to the union angle, is for an employer not to think that employees talk about their pay. Not only is that protected concerted activity, which a lot of companies don't understand, mm -hmm. but people do it all the time. So my attitude notes. about that, yeah, my attitude about that is your pay decisions should stand up to that kind of scrutiny. So don't, okay, let them discuss it. And I've had many times when employees have come to me and said, so and so told me that he got this increase, and I don't think that's fair. And I will always, because I can't discuss the other guy's increase with another employee, he may have that prerogative, but I don't. Um, I'll just redirect him to, let's talk about your increase and how that stacks up against the median for the job and what your performance is and how that influenced the outcome. So, Patricia, let me ask you this. With merit pay, and let's use your example, 3.5%, which would mean that somebody's probably going to get a 4.5% increase and somebody else is going to get a 2% or 1% increase, and some people will get no increase. Yes. So if you look at those lower increases or no increase folks, should they still be employed with the company? Very, very possibly. So let's say the median, I'll 
just to pull out a number, the median for the particular job is $50,000. Um, if somebody, because they've been a pretty good performer and have been with the organization for a long time and have been in the job for a long time, they might have gotten to the point where they're at 60,000. Good performer, but paid 20% above their peers. If that's the case, there's nothing wrong with giving that person no increase. The fact that they make 20% more than their peers may cause you to say, hey, listen, you're a pretty good performer. There are some areas that you could improve, but you overall, you're doing the job. Um, but your pay is not going to continue to increase. If you want to continue to have increases in pay, you need to think about career-wise stepping into another role that's got more upside compensation-wise. Right. Well, in that, you're you're talking about, you know, you've got your mid, mid and max, right? Right. So Although I don't like the term max. <laughs> well, but somebody's pay, you're basically describing somebody who's maxed out. Yeah, and, you're capping out. Yeah. And at that point, I don't know if you use the term red circled, but you know, those folks at the very top don't get an increase. What do you think about like bonusing people like that? It depends on what your overall approach to comp is. That's, that's something that you should have worked out for the entire organization. Okay. Giving the, So you're saying something like giving them a lump sum instead of a pay increase? Right. Yeah, that's a possibility. Because if I'm, you know, I've been at the job for 20 years, I'm at, I'm at the top of the pay scale at $60,000 a year, but I like my job and I really don't want to move. Yeah, we used to do lump sum um, bonuses, if you will, for our hourly associates who were at the top of the the pay for that position. Right. So let me go back to Barbara for a moment. Yes. Um, again, this, and this is the problem I've got with Maripace. A, she didn't know what she was getting dinged for. I still don't know if she knows what she was dinged for. She was not communicated with during the year. And in fact, the communication that she did have was very positive because the, the company loves her, the guests love her and all that sort of stuff. But the, the problem with that is more on the management or employer side when they don't have those communications. And I'm going to the HR folks that are listening because this is where I always see problems with union problems with merit-based pay. And when you have a, a plan like we pay our employees based on their merit, but you're not administering that plan well enough, that causes friction causes resentment causes disgruntlement oftentimes causes union problems yeah and even if it doesn't cause union problems you still have a workforce that becomes just demoralized and distrusting of their leadership and that's bad enough in itself right and the other thing it causes is the the feeling that there's favoritism going on because oftentimes the supervisor's favorite gets the higher increases and that all stems to if you can't define performance and make distinctions between levels of performance in a particular job, you shouldn't have pay for performance. What should you have instead? Pay based on something else. Everybody gets the same thing the way you do in a union contract. Um, pay based on service if that's what you want to reward. But if you can't make distinctions in performance, there's no point in having pay for performance because as you mentioned, all that does is end up 
inviting favoritism and distinctions based only on what's my relationship with the boss who controls the budget. So let me ask you this. If you're designing a pay for performance plan, how would you decide, design it so that it is equitable for the employees and understandable? The first question I would have for the leader is, um, and I've, I've actually had this conversation. Okay, here is a particular job and I want to pay for performance. Okay, here are the 10 people in that job. Stack them up, one through 10, according to how you perceive their performance. And then my next question to that leader is, explain to me how number one is different from number two and two is different from three and so forth. If there is a legitimate performance element to this to this ranking, they can articulate it. Even if they can't um, write any kind of a plan, they can articulate what is the difference in these performance levels. Then, once you can articulate the difference in the performance levels, you can create a pay for performance plan. The other question I would have then is, tell me what their pay is now. And how close is that to the ranking? And if the ranking in pay does not follow the ranking in the way you've just described their performance, how did you make your pay decisions? So let me ask you this. On your ranking scale of 1 to 10, and I'm assuming 1 being the highest, 10 being the lowest. Yeah, and that's 10 employees. Right. I'm not not using that as a scale itself. Right. But my... So if you use that as a scale, though, but if you have like one at the top, 10 at the bottom, right? why is 9 and 10 still on payroll? Like what differentiates those from the top performers? Well, it may be the distinction between a, a very okay, steady, nothing more than the job requires to an outstanding performer. 10 doesn't have to be a bad performer. You can have one through five, the outstanding performers, and then the bottom five being just adequate. Right. I'm asking that question because I think this is also what gets into the mistakes that HR makes or supervisors make when applying their pay for performance plan. Oftentimes employers will keep slugs on the payroll and just not give them an increase and use the pay for performance as a penalization as opposed to reward the the slugs to use your term should not get an increase and they should be in a performance management process that is either going to manage them up in their performance or manage them out you should not leave you should not leave poor performers on the payroll you should either help them fix the problem or help them find somewhere else to work but This is a mistake I see made very frequently. Right. I don't care what you call that increase. If you say you have a pay for performance plan, I wouldn't even give 25 cents to the poor performer, mainly because it muddies your message. So let's take that slug a little bit further. And I'm using this term. (laughs) Just so everyone knows, I don't call poor performers slugs. Well, I'm trying to keep... Sometimes they're just in the wrong job. I have more colorful terms for them as well. (laughs) But so what oftentimes happens is, and this is kind of going back to my premise, that a pay for performance or merit-based plan can lead to union problems, is that that, and again, I'm going to use the term slug, 
that slug who's not a poor performer and the supervisor just leaves that poor, I'm sorry, did I say not a poor performer? He is a poor performer, right? Yes. So the supervisor leaves the poor performer in there, but doesn't give that person an increase. That person then gets disgruntled, angry, talks about the favorites, sits around the lunchroom and Mm -hmm. complains or bitches about the company and how screwed up it is. And oh, by the way, should we go get a union? And that's how a merit pay plan gets all askewed just based on the poor management of managing the slug out. Yeah, you need to you need to manage performance. And the, the whole point of managing performance is to encourage people to do the best job they possibly can, not only for the organization, but for themselves. And if you can't manage someone in a way that allows them to be successful on the job for whatever reason, um, you need to address that quickly. I guess my point to this is don't use pay as a punishment. No, but don't use pay in such a way that it's disconnected from your performance conversation. So if you're telling an employee you're not getting the job done, you're potentially in danger of losing your job, don't give them a 25 cent increase. Don't give them a 50 50 cent increase. That, That is a mixed message. You tell that employee you're struggling in your performance for this, 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 and this reason. And not only is your your job is at risk, number one, and number two, you certainly aren't going to get an increase. You need to you need to be aware of where you stand in this situation. So would not that employee have had those conversations well before the increases are meted out? One would hope so. But a lot of times those conversations don't have. And this goes back to my first point of um, managers don't always feel confident in having those conversations. So many times they just avoid them altogether. They haven't had direct performance conversations. They haven't had that uncomfortable discussion of, Joe, you are coming in late much too frequently. This, you know, even though you're, you're not at a point where you're in danger of losing your job, Don't be looking for a merit increase if I can't get more reliability out of you. I want to tell you this eight months before your increase would be due because I want to give you a chance to fix this problem before it impacts your your pocketbook. And if you do have issues performance-wise, you do the verbal written, written out the door, right? Yeah, or whatever your your internal process is. But it's 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 that failure to discuss these things honestly before it's too late that leads to these problems and leads to people feeling like they haven't been treated fairly because frankly, they haven't been treated fairly. Just be honest with people, give them a chance to correct the problem. All right. So you've mentored a lot of HR folks over the years. You, yes. you teach HR. Yes. So why do you think it is people don't want to have those conversations? Cause they're really uncomfortable. Number one, and uh, these conversations should be happening between the manager and the employee, not HR and the employee. Right. HR tends to get used as the uh, <clears throat> the proxy in these cases, and that's not a good practice. It makes the manager look really weak. So the manager doesn't have that conversation because they're not quite sure how to do it, and they're busy running their business, and 
they just wait until it's too late. They don't, they just don't. And, and sometimes what HR needs to do, often what HR needs to do is step in with that manager and say, you've told me that this guy has a performance issue. You need to sit down and have an honest conversation. And if you need me to, I'll script it out for you. Well, that's kind of where I'm going with this, because in a lot of organizations, HR is the kind of the coach for the supervisor or manager, and they should be able to oversee or ensure that that's taking place, those conversations. HR certainly played that role in the, the employers that I worked with. And again, HR is behind the scenes. If HR comes in and has that meeting, it makes the manager look very weak. Yeah, and, and the organization in that case is disempowering the supervisors, managers. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. So be honest with your people and do it immediately. Don't wait until you've already drawn your conclusion about this person's future and all you're doing is creating the paper trail for the decision that you've already made. That is a bad practice. You should be making having these conversations early enough in the process that the person can change their performance if they're if they're able to or they want to and then change your perception of them don't don't wait until you've already made the decision and what you're trying to do is create the documentation yeah and i i think the problem that i had hearing the story about barbara is because i know barbara not great friends with her but i you know i her friend who told me the story i was like wow she loves working. She doesn't need to work, but she loves it because it gets her out of the house. She was excited to get the increase and it soured her. Sure. And you're taking somebody who loves the organization, loves doing what they do, granted it's part-time and turns them not necessarily against the organization, but really kind of like lowered her view of the organization from that point forward. And that's sad because it's like, you know, you have a good employee, you just turn them against you. Yes. And I'm, I'm a big believer that compensation is not a motivator in any long-term sense, but it's a demotivator if it's not done well. Right. So in Barbara's case, from what you described, what might very well have happened is it didn't reflect her performance. It reflected some manager's perception of who needed the money. Yeah, that's the other thing. Imagine if Barbara was a 25-year-old who need, you know, lives paycheck to paycheck. And I, you know, that's a point I kind of skipped because again, she doesn't need the money. So if she did need the money, imagine how upset she would have been. Yes. But as as we've talked about, sometimes compensation isn't about needing the money. It's about Compensation is a validation of your contribution to the organization in the mind of the employee. Right. And uh, if you step on that, that's that's a big mistake. Yeah, and I think that's what happened in her case. You know, I kind of go back to, like, if she was a Gen Zer who happened to be a barista and this was a, you know, Starbucks, for example, not to pick on Starbucks, but everybody knows yeah. what's going on with them. Like, that, that person could have easily gone from Wearing the green to wearing the red. Yeah, that's a good way to good way to put it. Um, but again, even if it's not the basis for an organizing drive, even if it's not the basis for 
a larger problem in the workplace, you've just deflated a good employee. Right. By 25 cents. Yeah. How much was that quarter worth to you? Yeah. And there could have been a thousand reasons, maybe valid ones, for her getting 75 cents when everybody else got a dollar. But if she doesn't know what those reasons are, it's human nature to assume the worst. Well, and that goes to the communicating throughout the year. Yes. And which that did not happen. And that's a shame. But again, a good HR team can coach their managers on how to have those conversations if it's a performance issue. And if it's not a performance issue, if it's an issue of Barbara already makes way more than her peers, that's a conversation they can have too. They can explain the context of the merit increase and they should, they should feel an obligation to do that. This is very, very important to the people receiving the increase. It's kind of management or HR training of management one-on-one stuff. I think so. So let me ask you, are you still doing a lot of the training with the students of HR? Um, That wasn't the particular class that I was teaching. I wasn't working with compensation. I was doing labor and employment relations was my class and will be my class in the fall. Right. Well, this, this kind of, to me, it ties it in. So, yeah. but when you're, when you're dealing with a contract, it's uh, a lot more black and white, obviously. Well, and I, I think that this is where our philosophical differences, small though they may be, um, kind of lie is I'm not a big proponent of pay for performance or merit-based pay. And in part because of my union background and also because every company that I've gone into over the last 30 years, where pay is an issue, it's usually because they screwed up their merit-based pay. Yes. It's not how much you pay. It's how you um, dole out the pay. Yeah. It'd be, and it's usually not about the, as you say, it's not about the quantifiable money part. It's how it's administered. Absolutely. And I, I think that most people, uh, look at look at Starbucks. Starbucks, Amazon, they pay above market for those jobs. Mm-hmm. And they have phenomenal benefits. But the the organizing has happened not because of their level of pay. It's happened because of perceived inequity inside that pay practice. Perceived, I'm saying, because I don't know whether right. it is or not. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of other issues, too. But, you know, Star- Starbucks has been a, yeah. Starbucks was an interesting one because historically they're a, quote, progressive company. Pay well. They've got great benefits, a whole variety of benefits for their partners or their baristas, whoever they are. Same thing with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're above market value or market-based pay. I don't know about Starbucks, but I know that Amazon pays really well, has outstanding benefits, but they expect a lot of their people in exchange for that. Um, yeah, that's true. In in the in the distribution environment, I occasionally would have um, associates who would quit, go over to Amazon, and within a few months they were back at the door saying, "You know, they're just pounding us. They don't want us to talk to our coworkers. It's just not fun working there. I'd rather make a little bit less and enjoy my job." Which you know, historically, again, pay is not usually the thing that drives people towards unions. It's supervisors, it's communication, it's, you know, that sort of stuff. Pay inequity inside the organization, not compared to the larger organization. I think if your employees 
believe that you're doing the best you can for them, even if you're not paying as much as the guy down the street, that's what matters. Yeah, you'll oftentimes see, you know, companies that are unionized across town, across the parking lot that are paying more, but it's a crap environment. People yep. will stay at the lower paid job because it's a good environment. I, I know the last time I was on the show, and this is an example I use in the book, too. I talked about the uh, the guy that I talked to, and I think several other people had similar conversations with other employees. Employer down the street was paying a small fortune in starting pay for material handlers, but what the employees who asked about it didn't realize at first was that it was third shift working in a commercial freezer. Yeah, you can make you can make more money over there, but are those the working conditions that you want? And are the bosses nice or not? And yeah, there's yeah. a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah. Well, Patricia, thanks for letting me air this issue publicly because it was one that as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to have this conversation. This is the Quit the, the the typical example of why I don't like merit pay. Yeah, well, merit pay, I'll go back to the beginning. You have to really be able to clearly define distinctions in performance in a given job. And you have to be able to communicate them. And you have to tie it back to some rational pay practice. If you can't do those things, you shouldn't have merit pay. If you're If you're trying to make distinctions about a job that is kind of binary, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. Um, that's going to be a problem. Merit pay belongs in a job where you can truly make distinctions between an outstanding performer and a marginal performer. And an employee should never be surprised if they're not getting a good review and increase. Like it shouldn't come as a surprise. Right. And, you know, to the guy who is um, getting, getting to the point where his increases are going to start being lower because he's made significant, he's making significantly more than his peers inside and outside the company. The time to tell that guy where he stands pay-wise is not when he's getting a disappointing increase. It's a year before the disappointing increase, so that that employee has a chance to explore other career options inside the company, hopefully, with, uh, with the full encouragement and guidance of HR and his manager. Well, to that end, and this kind of opens up another avenue here if you're doing if you're looking at your wage rates and you've got people topped out are your wage rates competitive out in the market because what we've seen over the last three or four years the market keeps shifting quickly yeah you should always always benchmark to the market right so a lot of companies are behind you know two three years right now because it's moving so quickly yeah especially well the hourly positions tend to move faster than salaried positions, and the executive positions move more slowly than the hourly positions. And the hourly positions are hyper-localized. So the, um, the pay for an hourly warehouse job, for example, and I, I say that because that's the one I dealt with the most frequently during my work life, um, that can shift significantly when a large distributor comes into the neighborhood literally. Mm-hmm. So right. those are, those are hyper-local and you really have to keep an eye on that yeah. and make sure that your benchmarks are reflecting what you want them to reflect as far as the market goes. Amazon decides it's going to open up a warehouse down the street from you. And all of a sudden all the smaller employers are like, ah, oh, crap, there goes all their employees. I had that conversation a thousand times and the, the conversation with the leadership team was always, listen, we cannot 
constantly be chasing Amazon. Amazon pays above market, but they're paying above market to make up for something else they're not offering their people that we do. We have a different environment and we should be paying competitively, but we don't have to constantly be trying to pay higher than the guy down the street. What we should be focused on is making sure that our employees are treated well, that we're fair, that we're reasonable, that we have relationships with our people, and that we aren't some megalith that uh, just throws high pay at people. That doesn't right. keep people, in my opinion. You know, I was thinking as you're speaking about this, about a Ford plant that's opening up. I think it's Ford out in the western part of Tennessee, and it's in a small town I've never heard of, but they're going to be employing 5,000 people. Wow, and that's going to so, turn that labor market upside down. Well, and they're going to draw people from Memphis and draw people from some of the other <laughs> small towns from around there. And, you know, I'm thinking about the labor market in that area and all the small employers. I mean, it'll be good opportunities for a lot of diners and, you know, folks like that. But, you know, you're going to be upsetting that labor market. Yep. And it happens. Yeah. Well, Patricia Garland... Thank you so much for coming back on Labor Relations Radio. I love having conversations with you because I can always like throw stuff at you and you can push back. <laughs> well, I enjoy the conversations too, Peter. Thank you. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thanks. So that was Patricia Garland, author of 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR. And if you have not read it and you have a merit pay plan, I urge you to buy her book. Because when I heard the story of Barbara, she is the first person I reached out to and wanted to have a conversation with. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out to me, contact me on Twitter at Workplace Report or X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Oh, black queen, take me to that place. Wash my sins You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Oh, black queen, take me to that place. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.